So what, part two of having Nick with us here. Um, what do we want to, we want to uh, keep asking him about? Yeah, I think we should talk about some of the more nuanced areas that you've learned to practice over the last uh, six or seven years where you're just in there every day, logging hours. And you, I, I think back to kind of what I've learned. Yeah, the, what you learn in law school is, is the basics, but what you do every day, they call it the practice of law. You're, you're getting smarter every day. You're still getting smarter every day. I'm getting smarter if you're working at it. But um, I know a couple of the things I want to talk about was how you interact with your clients, how you interact with your adversaries. It's hard to explain, but we'll, I think we should at least dip our toe in, in those topics here. So when you meet a client, what, what do you want to convey to that person? So I think I mentioned this on the last podcast, but sort of the fundamental barrier that I need to break when I meet any new client is getting them to believe that I am on their side. You have to remember that when I meet my clients for the first time, they've been in police custody for usually approximately 24 hours. So they were arrested. They were asked questions by the police at the scene. They were brought to a police station where they were asked a bunch of what we call pedigree information. So that's personal details, name, address, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they may be interrogated by a detective at the police station at that point. Eventually, they're going to be brought to central booking. So that's the central police uh, space that's located within the courthouse. They're going to be asked more personal information there. They're going to be interviewed by someone from the Office of Court Administration, who is once again going to ask them all these personal information questions. Um, and that's going to get even more detailed because that information is going to end up being used to create a risk assessment on their likelihood of returning to court. And then eventually they're going to end up in a jail cell behind the courtroom where they're going to wait for any number of hours. And then eventually I'm going to walk through the door, sit on the other side of the uh, caged area in the interview process and say, hi, my name's Nick. I'm going to be your attorney. And especially for, you know, someone that's been through the system a lot can be particularly jaded. Someone that it's their first time through the system can be particularly skeptical. But in a very short period of time, I need to convey to my new client that I'm on your side. Anything you tell me stays between us. I am the one person in this entire system that's been driving you all over New York City, asking you questions, trying to hurt you for the past 24 hours, I'm the one that's going to stand by your side and help you. And why should they believe me? Why should they respect that? Why should they actually trust that I'm someone that's going to do that when all I really have to do, have to offer is I'm an attorney and it's my job to help you? So that's sort of the first barrier, first thing I'm trying to convey in those first few minutes when I meet a client. And have you come up with any kind of tricks over the years to convey that? I mean, the words are hollow in some regards. Anybody can say anything, but people learn pretty quickly. Uh, a lot of them learn pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily have any tricks, and I think it's very client-specific. You know, sometimes a, a client will start ranting about the, the typical sort of stuff that I hear, you know, you're just working for the system, you're you're with them, you're just here to cop a deal, you're just trying to push something on me. And 
I've gotten pretty good at being like, you know, sort of my standard is when a client wants to rant or go on like that, I let them. You know, it's they've been through enough. I can sit here for two minutes and let them say everything they want to say. And then I just sort of explain like, listen, I'm a very good lawyer. I could be doing almost anything I want, and I'm choosing to be here defending people. That's my choice, and I'm not doing it because I want to put people in jail. If I wanted to put people in jail, I'd go work for the prosecutor. If I wanted to make a lot of money, I'd go do corporate law. But I'm doing this here because I believe that you shouldn't be in jail, and I want to do everything I can to help you and get the best result I can for you. And I find that effective. I think I can say that with a level of sincerity because it's the truth. And for most clients, when they hear that, they're like, okay, I'm listening. And at that point, they're willing to start having a productive conversation. Now, I I think some clients are naturally trusting, and they're more like, great, someone's saying he's with me, I'm on board. Some are like, wow, you don't sound like the last public defender I had. I'm, I'm, okay, let's do this. It's very client-specific. Every person you've ever met is different. Every client I meet is different. And some of those people, just the timeline that you gave, maybe they were using drugs and alcohol. They haven't slept in 24 hours. There's there's a stressful event in their life that has occurred. That first meeting is not always the best judge. You know, you have the follow-up meeting a week later. You get somebody out. You do a bail application. They come to your office. You see them in normal clothes, and it can be a 180 from that initial meeting. Yeah, yeah, and I think one big advantage of bail reform is that a lot of times we don't have to do a bail application on the first day. And there's sometimes when, you know, a client's going through a lot, they just want to get out. I say, hi, my name's Nick. You're getting out. I can tell you've been through a lot. Let's exchange numbers. Let's talk tomorrow. Let's talk in a week. And is that okay with you? And, and I explain them. You know, it's up to you. If you want, we can have a long 20-minute conversation now and go over everything. Or I can go tell them we're ready to go and you can go home. And most of them will say, let's do that, because as you said, they've been through a lot, they haven't slept, they haven't eaten, they're tired, and they'd rather just get out and have this conversation when we're on a more sort of equal setting. I got to follow up on bail reform. Huge topic, uh, political topic, uh, big topic here. Uh, just tell us a little bit about what bail reform is and, and kind of how it affects your, your job on a daily basis. And if you have any opinion on it, that's great too. Sure. I mean, I could talk forever about bail reform and I think a lot of the lies that have been perpetuated about it, but basically the essence of it is if you're arrested for um, a nonviolent felony or a misdemeanor, the presumption is that you'll be released. Um, All violent felonies are still bail eligible along with a certain number of, you know, sex offenses or all bail eligible and whatnot. Um, Domestic violence contempt cases are still bail eligible. But what it basically means is for the low-level stuff where people shouldn't be in jail, they're not in jail. Um, I think there's been a lot of mischaracterization about it. There's Every day I see a story in the news about the mayor of New York City or some other crime and punishment figure in the media talking about, oh, so-and-so was released because of bail reform. Like, no, like, you know, that case was bail eligible. They could have had bail set. Or, um, you know, I, I've had a client that had bail set, and then he gets out because the prosecutor doesn't meet their, you know, their technical burdens, and then, you know, everyone's blasting bail reform because this guy's out. Like, no, like, the prosecution just didn't prosecute him right. Um, I think bail reform is has been a very good thing in theory. 
I think it's a very good thing for a lot of clients. Unfortunately, our numbers that we're looking at are showing that for the cases that are bail eligible, so this is violent felonies, people are actually being incarcerated at a higher rate than pre-bail reform, which certainly should not be the should not be the situation, but that's what's happening. I think it's sort of a situation where the judges know they can only incarcerate certain people, so the people they can, they're going a lot harder on. I think that's our observation here, and it's not based on stat, just our feeling that, oh, I can set bail, I'm going to set a real high bail. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, though, that I guess like something that I didn't think of is, yeah, there's also legal procedure, that it's not just bail reform, and that's why that person was let go. There's also other issues that could lead to someone being released. Yeah, and, and I think the, I mean, the way bail works, if bail's working, every single person that has bail set would make bail. That's, that's the whole purpose of bail. Bail's not meant to be a uh, pretrial detention mechanism. The whole point is that you have put some money out there so that if you run away, they can take your money, and therefore that money gives you incentive to come back. But then you see cases where, like, you know, uh, there was this case in New York City where someone with access to money, apparently, um, shot or was accused of shooting a police officer, had really high bail set, made the bail, and got out. And then, you know, Mayor Adams is on the news blasting bail reform. Like, this guy had bail set. Like, you you got exactly what you wanted on this out of this circumstance. And I think there's a lot of like bad faith actors that aren't coming out and saying that what what we wrong, what they really want is people locked up in jail before they've been convicted of crimes, and yeah. that's what they want, and they just don't want to say it, so they use bail reform because it's a catchy lingo. And the uh, you can always argue against the big bad criminal, right? The uh, the safe streets arguments. They, there's a thousand different forms of them, but I think to drill down a little bit about bail reform and the reason it really affects. Um, people without a lot of money. So so the reason bail reform came about is you have somebody with a minor crime. They stole uh, a candy bar at the gas station. They're a kid. The judge sets $100 bail. Not a lot of money, right? Mm-hmm. $200 bail. They don't have $5. They sit in jail for six months or nine months, and eventually they get this trial six or nine months later, and on the day of trial, they're like, okay, you can go home now. Well, I've just been sitting in jail for six months on $100 bail. That's uh, the structure of it. You know, I don't think there's any perfect laws. I don't Whether it's bail reform or any other law, can we improve them? But I tend to agree with you. The people that beat the drum of the bail reform, there's a reason that this occurred, because people were sitting in jail who didn't need to be in jail. And, you know, that's... I guess that's my personal opinion. Yeah, but in just playing like devil's advocate, there's also the other side. So it's like not every case is cookie cutter. So that was put into place because not every case is cookie cutter. Um, I don't know where I'm trying to go with this essentially, but I'm assuming that if there was a person in front of a judge and they were really a threat to society or um, anything else that was dangerous, they would just not set bail. Correct? How does that work? I mean, I technically mean, speaking, under the law, the judges should not be considering dangerousness to the community as a standard because the only question at arraignment should be because remember, these people haven't been convicted of a crime. So the only question is supposed to be is this person a risk of flight that they're not going to come back to court if we release them? In practice, absolutely, that's what judges are doing. You know, in theory, someone that's accused of murder but has never missed a court date, should be released 
and someone that's accused of, you know, low-level robbery. Um, I'm trying to come up with a case. Or someone that's accused of misdemeanor contempt but has never come back to court should be have bail set. That's the way it should work if we're following the rules. In practice, no one that's accused of murder is getting out, even though that's not, strictly speaking, what the law says is supposed to happen. But this is just an example of the deviance between what the law says and how the law works in practice. That's sort of the essence of figuring out when you're an attorney. Gotcha. All right, so ongoing relationship with your client. We talked a little about, you know, what you've learned over the course of time. I, I think what you said is, like, let people talk. And I know that Jerry, one of the guys that works here, he has really great client relationships. I mean, we see these reviews that they write after afterwards, mm-hmm. after his cases are over. And, you know, he, he's, I think he does a good job for him, but that's what he's really great at, just listening, just the yeah, extra inter- five minutes, the extra 10 minutes, not interrupting. You don't have to always give the legal advice. Sometimes it's like, let the person talk. It, we're so used to talking and trying to solve the problem, and you know what you want to do with your case. But that was a very important comment, I think, if people didn't, didn't catch it, just talk and, and try to have a meeting of the minds at some level. But how do you continue that throughout the course of your representation? Well, and just to reiterate what you said, sometimes that's hard. Like when I'm in arraignments and – you know, I ask a client what happened, and what I want to know is, like, explain to me the two-minute window of what happened at the time you're accused of committing this crime so I can apply my legal legal to factual analysis and figure out what actually happened. And then a client will go, well, three days before it happened, and I'm like, oh, God, like, here we go. <laughs> and bring in their whole life story. Yeah, and, yeah. like, that, 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 for breakfast. That, that, there's <laughs> definitely, uh, like, uh, I get, like, like they're emotional and they want yeah. you to understand like everything and, that happened. And me crunch for time, 10 other clients to deal with, like my first instinct is going to be stop it. Like I want to talk about the moment you were arrested and rather the police violated your rights at that moment. Um, but I'll, you can go a long way in your attorney-client relationship by just letting them talk, hear everything they have to say, and then say, okay, now I want to talk about this. But um, I'm sorry, I didn't answer. What was your actual question, Bob? Well, I think that's really important. And then there's there's like zone out listening, which you know maybe it's not a essential element of your defense, right? And you're just like, okay, talk it out. Or, and I think what Jerry's really good at is he's actively listening. They're like, if I'm gonna if they're gonna talk, I'm gonna listen. And and he knows, okay, this can become important. And he, or it's the story. And and yesterday I was golfing. And then I did this, and then right. I had this, and then and then I got accused of a crime. And well, you're almost playing therapist in a sense in the beginning as well because they've been through an experience, and they need to explain it. And you're playing, you're so you're strategizing in your mind, but they you're also playing therapist because you they need to get it out, and you're the yeah. only person that they can talk to right now. And, yeah, and that's a, and I I think I used to say like, look, I'm not your therapist. I'm your lawyer. I'm here to get you a, a result. And right, but it's also like a balance because sometimes they need that person, and you're willing to listen. And I right. think as you get more experienced, that's maybe a, a young lawyer says that. As you get more experience, it's it's all together. You, you don't you're not just a lawyer or just a whatever. You're a person whose a number one priority is to represent. But in order to do that you have to have some of the softer skills, which I think we're trying to talk about, and it's a little challenging. Yeah. But In terms of, like, tips or tricks for cultivating a good relationship, 
I guess sort of one big picture thing to keep in mind, sort of the the hardest part about the attorney-client relationship for criminal defense attorneys, public defenders, is when you have to, I say talk into, I don't like that word because, you know, clients are making their own decisions, but advise a client to do something that they don't want to do. And usually that's going to mean taking a plea. Going to jail. That, that's the big one. Taking a plea that has an outcome you don't love. Or even taking a plea that the outcome's okay, but the client's like, I'm 100% not guilty, and you want me to plead to this violation of the law. Um, I got some good advice when I first started from my supervisor at the time, Jamal Johnson. He's now the head of homicide, the homicide unit for the Legal Aid Society. He's a very skilled trial attorney, one of the best I've ever seen. Um, and I guess just to back up, I'm someone that, like, I want to try cases. I try more cases on average than most attorneys, but I haven't done a lot. I've done maybe seven, eight trials, so that's, we're talking like one a year, and I've represented thousands of clients. So most cases do not go to trial. Most cases either get dismissed or you take a plea. So despite that, despite the fact that we all know that, you know, 50% chance this case ends in a dismissal, 49% chance that it ends in a plea, maybe 1% chance that it ends in a trial. What Jamal told me is start out every case talking to your client about trial. And from the get-go, you're convincing your client that you're willing to try the case. You're willing to do the work to go to trial. You're talking about defenses from the very beginning. Then when you get far enough into the case that you have to have the conversation, the conversation being we can't win this trial. If we go to trial, you're going to lose and you're going to get a bad result. The client is way more inclined to believe you than when you've started out the relationship talking about a plea from day one, talking about what kind of plea we can get the client. And, you know, you want to be realistic. Um, if you know up front that this is a, a bad, bad case, they hit, probably can't go to trial, you should be sharing that. You shouldn't be withholding that from the client. But when you're talking from the context and with sort of the view of trial in mind from the very beginning, I think that really goes a very far away in the client believing that you're someone that's willing to work for them, fight for them, and do whatever it takes. So you're kind of like reversing the way that you're thinking about the case, but you're prevent presenting it to your client in reverse, because that's how they're probably thinking, because they also don't know the inner workings of how case starts to end. Yeah. Um, they're thinking, oh, like you're not going to go to trial for me? What? Like they think it's supposed to go to trial. Right, and the the biggest rap that sort of like bad opinion people have of public defenders is that, oh, you're just a plea machine. You're here to get me to take a plea, and if I want to go to trial, I should go hire some trial attorney. Um, and I don't want them to think that because one of the <laughs> worst case scenarios is, you know, we have a case, I'm telling you, don't go to trial. You know, say the offer's two years, if we go to trial, you're going to get five. I tell you... I don't think I can win this. You get mad, you fire me, and hire some private attorney that's happy to do a trial because you'll give them twenty thousand dollars for it, and you know you're not going to get a better result. You're just going to pay twenty thousand dollars for that conviction. And then they go to trial and win. <laughs> it happens. No, and I don't mean that as a. It's it's a fine line and i'm talking about that in regard we can't speak in absolutes mm -hmm. we there are cases if if you got an hd video of a murder okay you can speak in absolutes but a lot of the times we're talking in these potential outcomes potential outcomes and it's like where do you and, and this is you know a great thing to talk to your students about or your other colleagues i think is 
you have to give solid legal advice about offers, mm-hmm. but you're also not the person who serves the time. And like, do you, I don't know what your opinion is in regards to some cases you should really strongly be advising other cases. That's your job is to advise. Like you could do an extra decade in jail if we screw this up or for then it's not your choice. Right. That's one of the things I, I personally struggle most with is how heavy handed to be with advice um, in cases where, you know, we as attorneys always have our opinion on what the best result is. And when that deviates from what the client is doing, how much we should be like, no, 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 you really can't do this. Or how much we should be you know, more client centered and let the client really guide the direction of the case. And I think it's, it's a tough balance. You know, one attorney once um, that gave a training when I was first started um, did not have a particularly like client-centered view on um, making decisions. And what he said was like, you know, like if a doctor says you have cancer and need treatment, are you going to let the client decide, no, I don't have cancer? And that was his view. He was like, we're the experts. We should make the decisions. And if the client doesn't agree with you, you should push the client to agree with you. And that's one extreme. And I'm not going to say that's right, but I get what he's saying. Um, on the other hand, there's some that I don't think are forceful enough. And they're like, well, the client wants to go to trial, so we're going to go to trial. And that's the client's decision. And, yeah, it is, but you have, like, an ethical obligation to really make sure the client knows the ramifications of the decision. Um, the ones I struggle most with is, you know, a lot of clients want, like, they want percentages. They want numbers. If I go to trial, what's the percentage chance I win? I don't know. Like, What's your jury look like? What judge do we get? Uh, what evidence? You know, what evidence can I keep out? And right. it's what witness doesn't show up? Right, exactly. And it's probably somewhere close to fifty percent because it's always a dice roll. But I really don't know. There are individuals that call even in the private section when people call. They want absolutes, and they're like, "Can you guarantee that I won't go to jail? Or can you guarantee that this is going to happen?" And Bob always tells them. I tell them. If you find a lawyer who will guarantee you an outcome, you should fire them immediately. They're a horrible lawyer, and they're not doing their job. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. <laughs> I, we get that one a lot. Yeah, that's, I, was like, uh, I that's felt a, like you yeah. had to you yeah, say that you one. For, thank you for the softball. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> but there think, are a lot of – oh, sorry, yeah, go, go ahead. I think the one I struggle with the most, and there's different scenarios, is very weak case, case you probably are going to win at trial. Mm-hmm. Like, and – a person with tremendous exposure. So what's the ultimate of that? We represented a guy. He got a 440 overturned by the fourth department, um, convicted of murder, did 16 and a half years, and gets out on insufficient evidence, more or less, for gets a new trial granted. There's all these other people. I mean, I would be telling you we had 99% chance of winning a murder trial. And... If you lose, you get life. The plea offer is man two with time served. You say the words, you walk out the door. He's already done 16 and a half years in jail. I mean, that's the that's the hypothetical. That's the tough one. Oh, and yeah. there's a million variations of that. Very weak case, very high exposure. And I, I mean, I don't know if you've come across that. I'm sure you've come across that scenario hundreds of times. Yeah, and I feel like most clients are inclined to take the offer in that case. But it's, yeah, those cases are very, very stressful, especially if you really in your bones feel your client's innocent. Yeah, that's the, um, and I, I'd say if I was in your shoes, this is what I would do. 
and there's mm-hmm. cases that I feel really strongly about plea, really strongly about trial. And, and sometimes I say, like, look, reasonable people could disagree. You get 10 lawyers in here and you're going to get 10 different opinions. And it's a, it's a close call and you got to live with it. Uh, but it's not also just about having your clients trust you. It's also about the relationships within the legal community and everyone that you come across and work with. Mm-hmm. What do you, I mean, how you have to keep good working relationships with all of them and some of them are your adversaries. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, and if we want to transition and talk about the sort of soft skill of working with people in the system and adversaries, that's something that's, um, especially in, for public defenders, can be very tricky. Uh, sometimes our clients get upset at us if they see us like being friendly with a, with a prosecutor, and then we have to go back and be like, no, 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 listen, I'm, I'm really on your side. I just have to be friendly with them so they'll give you a good offer or something like that. Um, but you might have a good relationship with that person too, but you have yeah. to know, you know, like it's not personal. Yeah, when you, <laughs> I, I think there's when different. You get into the court. Yeah, and it's, it's hard. You know, for someone like me that's a, a really true believer in, um, you know, keeping people out of jail and public defense work, you know, it could be very easy for me to be like the DAs, bad people, the court officers, bad people, the cops, bad people, screw them. But that's just, you know, if I'm a jerk to all those people, you know, if I'm a jerk to the court officers, they're going to call my cases last and make my clients sit around all day for no reason and waste their time. If I'm a, you know, if I'm a jerk to a cop I'm dealing with on the phone, he might accidentally forget to call me before he puts that client in that lineup that I wanted to observe. If I'm a jerk to a DA, he's just going to be motivated to go harder against my clients. Um, my sort of approach to dealing with my adversaries, specifically the DAs, is to be cordial, polite, friendly, but very rigorous and difficult to deal with in practice. So, you know, I'll be nice to you and shake your hand and say hello as I file this motion alleging misconduct against you. Um, I think when I first started, I was very successful at pushing a lot of cases to trial and developing a reputation within the Brooklyn DA's office as someone that's like very good and not someone that you necessarily want to go to trial against, or at the very least can be someone that's very difficult and willing to make their life very miserable through advanced motion practice, trial, hearings, etc. Uh, and I think that sort of has set me up to a point where now I go to trial less than when I first started because, at least in my opinion, I'm getting relatively good offers. Um, something I've found can be a useful skill and this ties into, you know, like I'm going to teach my class later this this semester a negotiation seminar on how to negotiate. And that's the bulk of what we do in the criminal field. Um, I find DAs are very receptive when you talk to them as though we have like a joint project we need to complete. Like, uh, Oh, Oh, DA Bob, uh, you know, it's neither of us want to try this case. You know, we both got a lot to do. Can, can we come to a, can we find a way to make this work? And, you know, can, can, can you get an offer that I can get my client to accept? And, you know, in, in my heart, I'm thinking, like, I am doing whatever I can to get the best result for my client, and that's all I care about. But you get the DA thinking, like, we're a team, and we're trying to achieve something together. And that's a soft skill that is really, in my opinion, a crux to successful negotiating. Yeah, and then the flip side of that, that you need to use your skills, use your abilities, negotiate aggressively, but you also, so the, I think the number one thing in the courthouse is the 
only thing we have. And what you started with was your reputation. And you can't lie to DAs. Mm -hmm. If you lie to DAs, you lie to the whole DA's office knows that you lied. So what you're talking about framing actual facts and actual argument and not, I'm going to hoodwink this DA and, oh, yeah. um, and trick them into some bullshit offer. Right. Your, your reputation is everything. I can, you know, if a DA screws me or does something unethical, the first thing I do is send an email to my entire office detailing every horrible thing that DA just did. And that DA's reputation is now trash with the entire legal aid society. And, you know, like if I'm dealing with a DA and I'm like, oh, is he, is he being weird? I search his name. Boom, five emails pop up about the bad things he's done. Okay, now I know I can't trust him. And I can only imagine they do the same thing on their side. Um, but yeah, I agree. You, you can't be lying. You can't be misrepresenting things. You have to negotiate as hard as you can for your client and do everything in your client's best interest. But, you know, if, if you burn your reputation with that office and you, you know, cross ethical lines, aside from the fact that you could face, like, ethical bar discipline for what you've done, it's, you know, you're really burning down your own reputation. Yeah, and I think it's more subtle than that, too. Like, you walk around the courthouse and you're like, that guy's full of shit. Like, everybody knows that guy's a big talk, no lawyer. He's, he's not good. He's just a big talker. And you don't, you don't want that. That doesn't help you. It doesn't help your clients. It doesn't help you live a good life. It, there, there's a lot of problems with that um, for all of us. But there's also the aspect of, like, when you said you're, like, people's mindset of, like, GAs are bad, judge, like, that all these people are bad, when that's not really the case. Like, that's their job, and you have a job, and it's, like, you know, you have to keep a good relationship and be respectful of one another because, again, your reputation is at hand. So, I mean, it probably can be difficult at times because I think sometimes there are probably cases that, you know, you feel very strongly about and you have to work with this person and you know have a mutual respect for one another does that get hard sometimes yeah and like keep your composure too so do you have the, like when you started out would you always go against the same da no no um so i mean here that's how it works yeah so there would be like a a class of da's that start at the same time as me so they've generally been doing like the same level work as me but like once you're doing felonies like Every DA in that office above a certain level is doing felonies, and that's hundreds of people. Mm -hmm. So I rarely have more than a case or two with the same DA. But, I mean, it can be hard, especially if you have a case you really believe in. Um, rather it be you think your client's innocent, you think your client's getting a raw deal, whatever else. Like, in my opinion, like, the DA is trying to actively hurt my client. The DA is trying to send my client to jail. And that, in my opinion, from where my ethical boundaries are, is about as bad of a thing as you can do to someone to take their liberty away. And so that can be hard to, like, cultivate a good relationship and work out a deal and, you know, do things in a collaborative method with someone that is trying to hurt someone that you care about. That can be hard, but it's necessary. You know, I can't draw a line in the sand and take an aggressive – um, adversarial approach to every single case. One, because it's not the best for every case. Two, because I'd be burnt out by the end of the year. Yeah. But So it's, it's, it's tough, but it's an important part of the job to be able to work collegially with these people that you might think are doing things that you really don't agree with. Well, all right, I'll push, I'll push on that a little bit just for fun. So do you think that people who 
commit murder should go to jail? Do I think the people that commit murder should go? I mean, we can get into a whole philosophical question about how I think the entire prison system should be revamped. Um, sentencing should be different. I, like, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that someone should commit a murder and should be back out on the streets tomorrow able to murder again, but I don't believe in this jail prison system that we have as it certainly exists, and I'm not going to feel bad if I get someone off on a murder, that's for sure. No, no, I'm not, and I'm not suggesting that yeah. you should. I'm not <laughs> suggesting that you should. I, I think um, just in regards to, I understand what you're talking about in regards to, like, I think you made the comment, like, true believer mm -hmm. earlier on, and... I don't. I think that that comment can sometimes get misconstrued as anarchist, right? Like I, the we got to let everybody out of jail, and every no matter what happens, there's no repercussions for any action at all. And I, I don't want to speak for you, but I'm assuming that's not exactly what you believe. No, that's not exactly what I believe. But I think that probably 95 percent of people that are incarcerated shouldn't be. But when I say like someone I think like I have a client who like technically speaking committed an offense charge and it's a nonviolent felony and um, it's in this specialty driving bureau the DA's office has and because of that they go way too hard about driving cases and he's like 20 years old and no record and they're trying to like send him to prison with a felony record and like I think that like this DA and her bureau are doing bad like I feel about this probably the same way that like an environmental lawyer feels about the attorney representing oil companies. Right. It's just bad. Every single day is bad. And the standard yeah. offer is bad mm -hmm. and, and the culture is bad and what par is, is bad. Yeah. And like, you're trying to hurt my client. You're trying to send my client to prison. Like, no, I don't like what you're doing, but I'm not going to like be a jerk to her. I'm not going to like, you know, refuse to answer her phone calls because that might be gratifying for me personally, yeah. but like, it's just going to hurt my client. Right. And, you know, it might come to a point where I'm like begging or I'm like, you know, doing whatever I can to get an offer for this client to keep him out of jail, even if it's not what personally is the most gratifying thing for me. Because in a way, you all are working together in some capacity. We have all, to. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so we're all, we're you all can't in. all be fighting 100% of the time, like nonstop. That's it, it doesn't help anybody. Right. And no. like this case that I'm talking about doesn't have like a like a trial defense. So like, what am I going to do? Say I hate you, we're going to trial, and then my client gets convicted? What, what does that get me? Right. We're all working in the same system. So that, mm -hmm. like a certain level, I know the first boss I had told me, you don't have to like the person you're going against. You don't have to agree with them it's going to behoove you to have some sort of a working relationship so that they answer your phone calls, you answer their phone calls, and you know what the issues are and you can go litigate the issues in court. And I thought that was solid advice. So I'm, I'm dying to know, you have obviously thought about, we, we've all thought, we work in the system and we say we could change the law, we could change the system, and you kind of alluded to it, you have some ideas about that. Um, it's actually not something I think about a great deal. I recognize like my role in the system and I'm very happy to be in that position, but I'm not particularly interested in being like the person that's charged with revamping this system that I personally want to just tear down to the ground. I mean, like, you know, I don't think anyone should be in jail pre-trial. I don't period fully. Um, I don't think any crime without a victim should be a crime at all. Um, you 
know, there's a lot of stuff that you're just getting into my political positions, but, um, but also the timeline, like, and, and I don't, I don't, I'm, we're happy to hear it. I mean, it's a kind of a, a form of, and I hope you don't take offense to anything that I've said or, no, or anything like that. It's, um, there's people who sit on their couches who watch cable TV and they have political opinions. I don't think that's you. You're living in the system every day. You have a very informed position, a very educated position, and you can, I mean, I think we're all benefit from somebody who's in it 40, 50, 60, 80 hours a week who says, I don't think this is right because of X, Y, and Z. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm interested, I'm interested if, if you have any specific things to know kind of what you think the shortcomings of our system as, as you're in your system, a little bit different than ours, but the same state, the same loss. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what, what's been on my mind a lot lately is how even within progressive systems and by progressive system, I mean, I mean like somewhere like Brooklyn where the DA claims to be a progressive prosecutor, there's still this inkling society wide, I think to solve more and more issues through the criminal justice system that I think is very damaging. Um, we're seeing a lot of, Stuff that, you know, accidents, people, you know, two cars collide and the cars that at fault were going to prosecute him instead of letting whatever the you would think of as the normal automobile accident process play out. Um, The number one crime that people are arrested for in New York City is driving with a suspended license. That's really not something that in my ideal world, police and prosecutors would be dealing with. Um, Prosecutors love lauding their like drug programs to resolve drug cases. What they don't tell you in the news is the way that works is like, you know, you're arrested for um, stealing packages from lobbies. That's a very typical crime that people that are suffering from substance abuse are arrested for. You're made an offer of, okay, plead guilty to grand or burglary in the third degree, do a year of treatment. When you successfully complete it, your case is dismissed. But if you fail at treatment, you go to prison for a couple of years. Like that's still a carceral response to a drug addiction. If I had my world, anyone that was suffering from, you know, anyone that was arrested and it was like a drug case, they'd be dro- dropped off at rehab and never even be prosecuted. Um, and I could go on and on, but it's just there's a growing movement, I think, of, and it's because the criminal justice industrial complex has become so big and so self-feeding that we want to answer more and more societal problems with police and prosecutors and the system that we have <clears throat> we have that's not actually particularly adept at addressing them i think one of my criticisms is that the most underutilized sentences are are short sentences like people do wrong and there's a way to have like sometimes there got to be consequences to actions you intentionally make a decision to do something you know is wrong you get caught but okay we all have done things we didn't like as a kid and your parents send you to the room for an hour. Okay. Put, put people in jail for a week, put them in jail for two weeks or 30 days, but you don't never see those sentences. You see a year, two years, three years. And you know, to us, there's not much difference between giving somebody five or seven. It's only, it's only two digits. You don't think about that's 700, that's that's 700 days of sitting in a cell. There's, you know, to a prosecutor, is five or seven. It's kind of the same range, right? It's a pretty serious crime. It's probably a reduction from a VFO. Okay, maybe you can get them seven. Maybe you can get them five. It's not, but in reality, that's 
two years of somebody's life. Well, if you think about it, like think about how many people, especially in New York City, were in their small apartments during COVID and they went crazy or mm-hmm. had a lot of mental health issues because they were stuck there. Now do it for seven years. Yeah, that that's one thing I, I see, you know, whenever there's like a big media case and, you know, someone that no doubt is accused of doing something bad gets like a 20 year sentence and then there's public outcry about like that's not enough time. That just always makes my skin crawl. Like, 10 years is a long time. It's a really long time. And, you know, I think it's... Even five years. Five years is a long... One year is a really long time. And, like, it's it's very hard for me anytime I see a, a news story and someone got years, any number of years, and the public response is, that's it, like... I just want you, like you go do a year in prison and tell me how how much not enough time that is. Like it's it's a long time. Uh, uh, the prosecutors, well, the offer is ten or more. We we really really try not to plead to people getting ten or more years in jail. I mean, there's just so many things that can happen at trial. There's very few cases, in my opinion, unless you're talking about a murder, mm-hmm. um, that you should be pleading to upwards of twelve, thirteen, fourteen years. We, I mean, I don't know if we've had three or four of them in the last. Yeah, Eight years here, not, not many, not many. And I, I love to tell the prosecutor, what were you doing a decade ago? Like, where where were you? Most of the prosecutors you're going against were probably in law school. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're, what have you done in the last decade? Well, I met my wife, I got married, I had three kids, I bought a house, all that stuff. You're going you're gonna to take somebody out for a decade? I mean, there better be a good reason. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, any other, like, clothing, closing, um, closing thoughts on... Katie wants to talk to us. Not rehab, what? Rehab. You can say it, because we'll just cut this part. Rehabilitative? Yes. What? Oh, oh, um, what Katie's talking about is, um... The, the extent to which um, we think about tr- uh, prison and the criminal justice system as rehabilitative. Um, and, and, and I have the sort of controversial take sometimes um, that we think too much about that sort of stuff in progressive liberal circle, in progressive criminal justice circles. Like, um, to what extent can we use the criminal justice system to fix this person's life? And I hate that. I really hate that lens of thinking like, um, you know, we're going to take this person that's struggling from substance abuse and we're going to fix their drug addiction. You know how we're going to do it? We're going to hang 10 years in jail over their head or 10 years. Of life. It's probably more like two years in jail over their head. Or, um, you know, the, the idea that we can send people to prison for five years and they're going to come out a better person. Like um, in general, I, I think that it can be a very problematic way of thinking, and I think it can be very dangerous when we start letting people that are progressive thinking assume that we can start fixing people's lives, which in general I think is a very dangerous way of thinking, through this system that at its core is not meant to help people, it's meant to punish people. Yeah, that's a a really interesting um, topic in general. Excellent. I mean, I think that that's true. And you also think about rehabilitation of what percentage of people are, I don't know, I think I've represented about a thousand people in criminal defense cases, and I can think, yeah, around that. And 
you know, what you talk about these people who are, are you a, is there a person, assume somebody's guilty. A lot of our clients are, are guilty of some sort of crime, but who are truly evil, who want to hurt people. That is what, and I can think of one or two who scare the living shit out of me. And that leaves 999 other people who are like, pretty good dudes, pretty good, pretty uh, decent things. I don't know. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of times the natural response, at least in offices like in Brooklyn, that is becoming like, you know, th- there's this big belief in programming, which certainly like I'd rather have my clients do a program than get a prison sentence. But a lot of times it's we're trying to fix people instead of just responding to one instance of bad conduct that like, I remember one time I had a client that um, he was accused of a hate crime. It was a, um, it was a black man who was an immigrant from a African country who was accused of waving, uh, uh, waving a fork at a gay couple and yelling some homophobic slurs at them. So that becomes a felony hate crime. And, you know, as I dug into it, part of it was like he came from a country where, you know, gay marriage and homosexuality in general is outlawed. And like he clearly has like some cultural issues he needs to work through. But the DA's response was that they wanted him to do a mental health program. Like their response is we can fix whatever's wrong with him by making him do like mental health treatment. And it was a classic example of like we want to use these square peg tools we have at our disposal to fix issues that we can't actually fix here. Um, and like, yeah, like my client did a bad thing, but like his end result of like pleading to a felony and doing a program that almost everyone agreed, like, like, yeah, he didn't have schizophrenia. Like why is he in mental health court? But he did the program. He avoided it. Did it actually fix anything? Probably not, but you know, it's, we, we, we have programs, so we use them. Well, that also kind of goes into account, like, is it the state's job to fix someone? That's exactly what I'm saying. And um, certainly, like, I'd rather, as I said, I'd rather my clients do a program than go to jail. Mm-hmm. But when you start talking about trying to use the, the criminal justice system to fix people, I think it can be a very dicey thing to talk about. And, like, yeah. Because, again, you're, it's cookie cutter. And every person case or situation is very different mm-hmm. so not every program is going to fit yeah every single person and like it's i think it's we don't like racism we don't like homophobia we don't like what drugs and substance abuse do to people but that doesn't mean that the criminal justice system can solve those problems and i think oftentimes there's a desire to do so because it's such a big broad pro- system that we have in place that, okay, well, we might as well use it in that way since politically it's not so hot to send people to prison for those things anymore, but it's, um, it can, it makes me uncomfortable at times, that's for sure. And you get into dealing with DAs who have the, who are making these decisions, they're controlling your offers. Yes. And then you have a hundred DAs at an office and, you know, you get one person and they do it one way, you get one person, they do it the other way. And that's, uh, um, I think going back to your stuff about prosecutors, that's what we're always really scared of is someone who does the wrong thing, who really hurts somebody who who doesn't deserve it because the prosecutor's a lunatic. Yeah. Hello? (laughs) Sorry, Nick. 
I just wanted to jump in and say something real quick. Back to like, who's it serving? Is it serving? Well, why don't you tell yeah. us who you oh, are hello. and why and, and yeah, what you, you do? Serving, <laughs> serving, okay. And now we'll bring in the social worker. <laughs> Please hold. Sorry if that was so creepy. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm literally wedged. Okay. There you go. Okay. Um, <clears throat> oh, thanks, Bob. Sorry. Oh, you're not Don't trip. You're okay. So, Katie. Katie has an opinion on some of the <laughs> topics that we were discussing, but tell me who you are and what you do. Yeah, so I'm, my name is Katie. I'm a social worker with Nick at the Legal Aid Society in Manhattan, and I just wanted to add a quick thing. You're also my wife. Oh, yes. Hello, husband. Um, I know. (laughs) Separation of state. Um, I just wanted to, as a social worker, kind of add in something that I think is really important is, you know, we try to, I think like rehabilitation is a huge word. Like we want to rehab or we want to rehabilitate these people who have may or may have not done these incidences or these crimes. Um, And I think the hot spot, like, yes, programs, 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 someone who has like one thing wrong with them, they need to do a whole year and a half of mental health treatment that they're not going to get anything out of, like Nick had said for that one client. And putting them in jail, who does that serve? It serves not the client. It serves the checkmark boxes of the DA's office who said, yes, I did what I could do to like just get it done. I don't care what's going to happen to that client when they get put in upstate for a year and a half. Um, and I think a lot of times... I haven't seen it come to like fruition, but I think a lot of times what happens is that um, the clients who have mental health diagnoses or drugs, a substance abuse diagnoses, what happens is it gets worse when they get sent upstate or in Rikers Island because you're taking them out of the community that they've known for so long. You're forcing them into a cell for you know solitary or with you know 40, 50 other men or women, and it's making their mental health diagnoses worse. It's making them turn to drugs in Rikers or upstate worse and it's making them become addicted to you know different things um, so it's not really solving the problem and then you expect them to go to the community after they get released and you know be rehabilitated because right. they did two years upstate or whatever um, and Nick can talk more about kind of how that doesn't play out but like, I think it, and there's not enough resources to to really transition folks from being upstate or at Rikers and back into the community. I'm sure that a lot of people, right, aren't successful necessarily in these programs, but are there any? Like, have you come across? I'm sure that it does help. Like, not saying that these programs right. are not completely unuseful. Like, they're not useful. Yeah. I'm sure there are, but they're cookie cutter. So yes. they're not going to help everybody. person. Yes, yes absolutely. And there's, oh, go ahead, Nick. There's undoubtedly success stories. Yeah. And there's, there's people that get clean and get off drugs because of these. But I think there's also an issue of, like, at what to what extent is it's the state's prerogative or role to force people to do these things? You know, there's and these sort of biases and natural desire to fix people and uh, rehabilitate people. I think it permeates public defenders and defense work too. You know, there's cases where um, a client might say, "I'd rather do a year in jail than two years of drug treatment," and as a public defender, like, no. That's, that's no. And I think at times, sometimes we have to like humble ourselves and tell us that like, you know, it's the client's decision and the client, the client's the one that has to do the treatment or do the jail time. Mm -hmm. And if he's saying, I'd rather, I'd rather go to jail for a year and then get out and keep doing drugs 
that's the client's choice. And I'm really big on respecting those kind of choices by clients, even if it's not the sort of life choice that I personally would want to make or agree with. Because, you know, I don't think the state should be trying to force people into treatment or force people to change their lives. I certainly don't think that someone's own attorney should be trying to force them to do those things. Well, I'm assuming that the first step of recovery is them making that decision on their own, not being forced into it. Because maybe they know that in the past they've tried programming for their substance abuse addiction and it didn't work. And they just want to keep using despite the punishment or the, you know, whatever's being held over their heads. But we see that a lot. You like, you know, you stay clean and do this program for a year and then, you know, you'll plead to the misdemeanor next year. And the client's like, we know it. They're like not they know they're successful. not successful no. or they don't want to. Exactly. So right. What do you do? Right. Right. And that's a lot. I mean, I don't have that conversation. I mean, sometimes I meet with the attorney and the client to like have a holistic conversation, but that's not part of my role is making sure they understand like the consequences of their actions. Like it's up to them and Nick and the other attorneys have to guide him, guide them into doing that. Um, I have one success for story that, you know, a client, it was a DV case and um, no. Oh, oh yeah. Domestic violence. Thank you. Um, and you know, he acknowledged it was his first arrest. He's in his like sixties. He acknowledged his like anger problems and was like, you know, I, I really want to do this 26 week. Um, it's called a PIP. Um, it's like basically like batter's intervention or domestic violence. Like you're acknowledging your fault in an argument with a, a partner. Um, and he's like, I want to really do that 26 week intensive program because I feel like I have a problem and I want to be better. Um, he wasn't having, having jail held over his head, like other cases we've seen, but he, you know, really felt like this was a really good fit and he's been so, he's successful in it and he's halfway through. Um, and I think that, you know, there's like very fewer success stories that we know of, but there are success stories, which is, you know, helps motivate our, our work. Right. Yeah. 